Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, also on Sirius XM Channel 130, and, of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to the catholicassociation.org slash podcast or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I have with me my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson. Good afternoon, Maureen. Hi, Gracie. You know what I did this morning? I heard. Please tell. <laughs> this morning, for the first time in many weeks, I went to daily Mass. And this was uh, the very first day that the Archdiocese of Miami, where I live, opened Masses to the public. And I have to tell you, there was something uh, there was something really special about being away so long from the Mass and coming to it with a fresh perspective and a fresh, a completely fresh appreciation. And it was really, really wonderful. You know, I'm so jealous, Grace. See, we still live in the hot spot of Montgomery County, suburban uh, Washington, D.C. So we are still under our lockdown orders, unfortunately. So we still have to settle for watching mass on our computer screens, which is just really beginning to feel a little, you know, there's a corrosive effect to watching mass on a computer screen. And somehow the symbolism of kneeling in front of one's computer, it's just not good. No, you know, it's started to really annoy my husband and I because we're daily mass goers and just the, the, the constant watching in front of the computer. And I thought we made a lot of spiritual progress when it first started because it made us very aware of the homily and, and the readings and there was a different appreciation, which was great. But after a while, it really, really was getting difficult <laughs> when when we knew that the real thing was getting closer and closer. And and I have to tell you today at mass, the people who were serve, you know serving the mass, the ushers and, and everybody were being so scrupulous and following the directions of the archdiocese and also all the all the mass goers we were all very scrupulous about following directions and i think that the american people can be trusted to follow directions at mass as much as they can be trusted to follow directions at the local target or at the home depot i think so too and we're beginning to see a lot of pushback uh, last week in minnesota there was a fascinating drama played out really because the minnesota governor decided that the risk of spreading the virus in Minnesota was so low that he decided to open all the retail stores, the liquor stores, casinos, tattoo parlors, marijuana dispensaries Mm. even. But yet in-person church services were still disallowed. They were deemed to be non-critical and pushed to the back of the line. So thankfully, the bishops in Minnesota and the Lutheran church as well, they said respectfully, Governor, we are going to begin our public masses and services again because we can do this safely. You can trust us. We have all the protocols in place. And they pushed back and had a victory because the governor finally backed off. You know, I think what's happening is that there's a lack of understanding from people who aren't religious as to how essential and necessary our services, our masses to people who have, you know, the sense of the transcendent to religious people who have an active relationship with their God. And for us to be told that these are not essential to our lives doesn't it doesn't ring true to us it doesn't feel true (laughs) we feel that we need it very much and it's good to see the governor of minnesota for instance bowing to that reality that's right in times that we're living in we need faith more than ever and um it was just really encouraging to see these bishops push back and say we cannot abide by the indefinite suspension of worship and you know the courts have said there's no pandemic exception to the first amendment and these churches were asking for equal treatment, not special treatment, but really it just, it defied common sense. So it was really encouraging that the governor backed off. The Trump administration also weighed in strongly saying that houses of worship are indeed essential services. I watched President Trump in his his press conference make that statement. He made it very movingly. He made a statement about how these worship services for Americans, for many, many, many millions of Americans are crucial to their lives. And as you mentioned, we have a lot of necessity right now for spiritual comfort, for consolation, for the soothing that it does to our souls. 
Yes. Computer mass was a good plan B when our plan A was not possible. Amen. <laughs> Maureen, we're happy to introduce to the show our guest, our first guest. Her name is Megan Cox Gurdon. Megan is a longtime journalist whose writings have been widely published. She is the Wall Street Journal's children's book reviewer, and you can catch her columns in the weekend edition. Megan Gurdon is also the author of a wonderful book called The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. She and her husband live in Maryland, and they have five children. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Megan. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. Well, Megan also has a certain claim to fame in my family because our daughters were in the same school for many years, and it was quite a trek to get to this far away destination, as you remember, Megan. So we teamed up in our minivans and had quite a rowdy carpool going for several years. And Mrs. Gurdon was by far the favorite mom in the carpool. So my <laughs> girls loved when it was her day to drive. They would listen to audio books and an occasional schoolhouse rock video. So it's such a treat to have you join us today. I am delighted to be with you. And yeah, those those schoolhouse rock videos were fantastic. I mean, I found them very instrumental in my own education as a child. Back in the days when you watched television on Saturday mornings and it was a big, exciting thing to get to see cartoons. You know, I learned the preamble to the U.S. Constitution from America Rock, which is one of them, one of the subsets. And all our children, Maureen, learned those same songs <laughs> in well, the back of my long-begotten minigun. Well, my girls spontaneously break into some of those songs sometimes and they remember every word. So Megan, I have always been fascinated by your habit of reading aloud to your children every day and not just little board books like Goodnight Moon or Runaway Bunny, but long chapter books. And what really fascinated me is that you continued reading aloud to them well after they had learned to read themselves into their teenage years even. So tell us about your day habit of reading aloud to your children and how it led you to write this wonderful book. So, well, I, I think probably both of you also read to your children. I guess I developed something of a fanatical attachment to the idea of reading aloud even before I began the practice of it because I saw a good friend of mine, this was a couple of years before I had children and indeed was not even married at the time. I saw her drop everything essentially when there were people at her house for dinner and go and read to her sons. And what I saw her do was to put reading aloud at the absolute center of the daily routine, regardless of what else was going on. And that was a very galvanizing thing for me to see. I had been read to by my own parents, uh, but they stopped um, when I could read for myself, which was relatively early in my case. So I really have no memory of them reading to me. I know it happened. And so having seen my friend do this, when as soon as I then had my first child, I, you know, I'd grown up uh, without a lot of babies. And, I, you know, I'd, as my father will say, I, I was the... Um, an only child from a broken home. <laughs> and um, so I didn't have a lot of experience of babies or children. The one thing I knew when I did have my first child was this idea of reading aloud. It was the only thing I knew. So I imitated my friend, who in a way I now see as a, as a role model, and I simply put it at the center of our nightly routine. And it wasn't always at night, but it was the one non-negotiable thing that we did every day, like brushing teeth or whatever. But it was, we always read aloud. And we started, I started at the very beginning with the birth of my first child. And then I had, you know, four more children. And because it was one of those practices that, um, you know, started early, uh, it, it, it was very easy to continue it. And I think that it has, it has been immensely generative for my own children. But it also, I, you know, I felt while I was reading to my children, we would give it about an hour a night. I felt that something very big was happening, and I was not sure what it was. When I decided to write the book, there were I was starting to see some some signs here and there that there were you know, there are actual scientists and doctors looking into what is taking place when we read aloud. And this inspired me to search deeper and find out if I could actually trace this miracle to its source and find out what really was happening. Forgive the very long-winded answer. <laughs> you know, in the way of <laughs> in the way of life, there are so many little threads that go into producing any outcome. You mentioned in the even in the title of your book, The Age of Distraction, and I know that what we're seeing nowadays is an, an obsession with screens. It's very common not to go out to lunch or dinner and find uh, the parents speaking to each other and each of the each of the children, however many there are, is each holding their own particular private screen and is engrossed in whatever's going on in, in that little computer. Of course, this was all written and conceived before the idea of COVID came along to 
completely reconfigure the way we spend our time. What what a, what a luxury it would be to see children on a in a restaurant of any kind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly right. You know, the the, the, the difficulty is, and I, I had to be very careful in the way I framed the argument, uh, and that is, you know, nobody wants to be reprimanded. And there is a, there is among us as parents, I think, a general you know, an uncertainty, maybe an unease about how much technology has crept into the lives of our children and indeed into our own lives and some of the effects that we're seeing from that. Scattered attention spans, much less time spent together. And again, setting this aside from the whole COVID thing, which has reconfigured the world. And so what I've really sought to do with the book is to present reading aloud, um, first of all, as the magnificent thing that it is, and secondly, as a kind of antidote, which it genuinely is, for these uh, negative effects that come from extended use of technology. And it isn't just what happens in the individual brain, let's say of a child or an adult who's on technology. It's the opportunity cost with young children. The opportunity cost includes the time that is spent doing something that is not cognitively stimulating, whereas reading aloud supplies that cognitive stimulation. It's also the opportunity cost of emotional connection and togetherness in in a very real way, which is between us, you know, between parents and children, between siblings, it's a necessary part of, of developing a full and civilized human being, and we're losing some of it. Megan, you talk in the book about the Goldilocks effect, and uh, you wrote a whole separate column on this. I grew up with a mom who always told us that watching TV gives you a mushy brain, and our TV <laughs> broke when I was a child, actually, and my mother, quite on purpose, just never fixed it. For many years, we had no TV in the home. So my children today will repeat um, this mushy brain line. But um, but tell us, what is the Goldilocks effect? So when I was researching the book, I spent some time out in Cincinnati where some there's a sort of cohort of doctors who are doing research on what reading aloud does to children's brains. And what they've been doing is they've been putting cohorts of young children between the ages of three and five. Generally speaking, they are four-year-olds, and most of them tend to be girls because what they're doing with these children is putting them through fMRI machines and looking at the at their brain activity under different stimuli. And this Goldilocks effect comes to bear with a study that they did a couple of years ago. The, the researchers wanted to see what was happening in children's brains under three distinct circumstances. One was when children were lying in darkness, listening to a story told to them, read to them, in fact, it was a storybook. Um, the second scenario was when a child was listening to a story being told to them and seeing still pictures on a screen. So very much a simulacrum of the read aloud experience, right? There's nothing is moving. It's just a story you're hearing, you're looking at a still picture. The third scenario was when the children were shown a video. Um, all three, incidentally, were stories by the Canadian writer Robert Munch. Um, they were, you know, very accessible and age appropriate. And what the researchers in Cincinnati saw was that under the first circumstance, when the child was just listening in the dark to a story, there's a little bit going on between their different brain domains, kind of connections and synchronizations. When the children were having the ex- kind of a picture book experience, it doesn't have the cuddling, right, on the sofa, but they're, they're seeing the still pictures and hearing uh, the story, That was the Goldilocks moment. It was not too hot, not too cold. It was just right. All the different domains of the brains were connecting and communicating and synchronizing, helping to lay the groundwork, the sort of architecture for future brain growth. But the third scenario, when the children were watching a video, do you know what was happening in their brains? Almost nothing. Wow. Almost nothing. The brains, children's brains were registering a kind of shock and awe of visual excitement, but there wasn't enough time for them to reflect, uh, uh, to consider, to really draw conclusions. There was only one part of the brain really was lighting up and the rest of it was basically dark. So that's why I mentioned that it's so important when children are small uh, that we make sure that they have a kind of an antidote, a kind of counter stimulus that will help generate the, this brain growth that screens just aren't going to do. And you also talk about how babies look at adults to see what we are looking at. So if we are glued to our iPhone, that that's what they'll be looking at. And I often think now, 
We are young-ish mothers still, but I often look at younger mothers at the park or walking in the stroller. So many young moms today are just glued to their iPhone, and I just think they don't even know how much they're missing out. Babies are not just missing out on something. You know, there are other studies, and they're not included in my book. I learned about this phenomenon after I finished it. Babies are actively distressed by essentially what what looks like a dead absent, unconnected caregiver. There are videos you can see of experiments done with babies where a mother, you know, who's who's actually participating in this thing will will sit and talk to her baby, you know, back and forth in the way that you do in the baby will maybe rock the baby in a little chair or something. The face is animated and the child is drinking in the mother's expression and hearing her voice and getting all those wonderful social and emotional cues that babies get from the people who love them. And then, you know, the mother will just look down at her phone. And you know what happens to us to our faces when we go on technology, yeah, I mean, maybe you alluded to this, we go flat. There's a very slackness uh, that is like the absence of presence. And babies, when their mothers do this, they become anxious. They kick, they writhe, they make faces, they, they can't speak. But they're trying to get their mothers to see them. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but I know I have. When I'm on my machine, literally a man in a gorilla suit could come into the room and jump (laughs) around. And I wouldn't even, I would would never know it. Anything could happen. You're reminding me of my, our fifth child is adopted from China. And she she had had very little human interaction in her first few months of life. And she was fascinated by us talking to her and smiling at her and interacting with my husband and I and her siblings. But what's so interesting is that her even her physical development was was terribly stunted by the lack of emotional and human interaction. So I wonder if in a smaller scale, of course, because nobody's talking about children being abandoned in cribs for days at a time or months at a time, but that, that lack of human interaction with our babies, because we're looking at a screen, is going to have repercussions that we don't even, we can't consider even right now. Yeah, and, and it will be interesting how we take note of it when it happens, because again, it's, it's, a, it's a vast and mass experiment, you know, with an enormous cohort of children now. So it won't, you know, whatever distortions come from this will be experienced very widely. And perhaps it'll just be one of those things where we say, oh, this generation does X. Well, maybe this generation will do X because we have we have squandered valuable time with them. And Megan, when you talk about the brain chemistry and the, and the difference in, in the functional MRI, are there studies that uh, differentiate between being read aloud and reading oneself? I mean, what, what, what's the difference in... Yeah, that's, that's beyond my that's beyond my realm. I, I, there may there may well be. I mean, I, I focus entirely on reading aloud here because that's you know it's not my, my brief is not reading. And interestingly, there's this is a place in which it's not so much that I depart from the great Jim Trelease who wrote uh, the Read Aloud Handbook, but his the purpose for a lot of people who promote reading aloud, I would say, is that it it, it is like a gateway to the world of reading in itself, right? Mm-hmm. And all the pleasures sure. that can be from that. Um, to me, it is the thing itself. It is reading aloud is itself such a magnificent thing, um, and actually, I'd love to I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the things that it offers us. Um, but but just quickly to go back to this question of babies and children needing adult, you know, contact. Um, one of the brilliant things about reading aloud is that it is um, you know a single experience that gives children and and parents almost everything they need to develop well. As a, as 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 a you know as a family and as individuals, it gives children uh, it, it, it habituates them to paying attention. It gives them f- physiological warmth and comfort. Uh, it gives them the directed attention of an adult, which, as you know, they need. Uh, it gives them exposure to language, to syntax and grammar, and uh, and you know, sort of imaginative realms all these you know vocabulary all these wonderful things that we get from language and in the in the in the imparting of language in particular one of the brilliant things about it is that children don't have to struggle in order to make sense of a story that is read to them i mean we none of us do right learning to read and write is a very arduous process that's true uh, it's not a natural process for the human brain we really kind of have to cobble together different different you know capacities in order to bring them to bear to learn to decipher inky marks on a page but listening as someone speaks to us, as someone tells a story, that's as old as humanity. 
So when we read aloud to someone, and again, it can be a child, it could be our spouse, it could be an elderly parent, we are freeing that person from the, you know, what may be for some a very difficult process of, of understanding what's on the page on their own. We're, we're liberating them, setting them free in the, with the spoken word and allowing them to take in all its goodness without effort. And this just cannot be overemphasized. It's such an important aspect of it. So, so Megan, I I confess to what many parents do. They read to their children when they're small. I mean, I read endless hours to my children when they were small and just what a joy to look back on those times. But I confess to having sort of felt like I fulfilled my duty of reading aloud once they were really good readers on their own. So then I thought, well, now I can read my book. But because I was inspired by Megan Gurdon and her reading aloud, um, with my youngest, we have made it a practice. I'm not as consistent as you, Megan, but I have had just the most delightful times with my little Lucy reading aloud. And I wonder if you could share with our listeners some practical advice, because how did you pull this off with five small children, a husband who was, you know, working late? He, he didn't really do it so much. It was really you. And you had a busy job of your own. And I know my problem when I'm reading with Lucy is that if we do leave it till bedtime and cuddle up in bed, which is just the most precious time with her, um, but I do fall asleep. So <laughs> did, you, did you do it sometimes? at dinner time or in the morning. No, that's exactly right. That's so tip. funny, Maureen. I talk, you know, I talked to a lot of people in the process of writing the book, and there was one mother who said to me flatly, she said, I never did not fall asleep when I was reading to my children. <laughs> True confession. So, so I think the first thing is, the first thing is, it's like anything that you want to do. You know, uh, if, you, if you ask yourself, do I feel like going for a run? You know, the answer is always going to be no, right? Mm-hmm. But if it's <laughs> Oh, I'm going for a run. You just sort of set, you know, if you just sort of make something routine, I guess, I mean, I really can fall back on that in my case, because it was um, because I made it a routine before I even had any other routines. It was a little bit easier to perpetuate it, I think, probably. It just I had the crutch of my own habit. But but the other thing is that, um, I, you know, I think people can read. I certainly recommend reading when, uh, you know, when, if it's a children's dinner, you know, let's say you and your husband in the days when there were restaurants were going to a restaurant, you could read to the, I mean, I would read to them, uh, during children's dinner. Uh, I was able to read to my teenagers. Um, one of them who had stopped, uh, re- reading with me for a while, she would listen to me read to her in the mornings when she was going to high school, she would eat her breakfast and I would read for 20 minutes or something before she jumped on the bus. I want to live in your house, Megan. <laughs> I'll tell you something. It sounds delightful. Here's a painful irony. When the book came out in January of 2019, uh, my youngest child, uh, Flora, was 13. And about a month after the book came out, book touring and all that, she said, Mommy, do you mind if we don't read anymore? Oh, and it was like, I I had this like shiv between my ribs. (laughs) And I had to say, of course, it's fine. I respect that. That's okay. But... In the course of, of speaking publicly about this whole subject, I was approached by, at uh, one place, I was approached by an elderly couple who said to me, uh, you know, we are just so, we wouldn't have believed this, but uh, recently, you know, I've started reading, the woman said, you know, my husband's got macular degeneration, and I've recently started reading to him, and they said, they both of them they had, they had this, like, secret, they're like, our marriage has never been better. Oh. So... I went home that night. I was like, Hugo, to my husband, I'm reading to you. Because <laughs> I didn't have Flora as my victim anymore. Anyway, so, so you know, reading, it's, it's not just with children, right? You can, it's a real pleasure and a, and a kind of an extraordinary means of encountering the, the presence of another person uh, of all ages. Well, Megan has found a new outlet for her reading aloud on Instagram. <laughs> she started quarantine Instagram uh, read alouds, uh, probably never dreaming that the quarantine would go on for so long. But if any of your listeners can find her on Instagram and put your children and yourself, I'll say, in front of this, it is such a treat to listen to you read aloud. My children said, I would listen to Mrs. Gurdon read an instruction manual <laughs> because you just have the most delightful and colorful manner in your reading. And so I definitely encourage all of our listeners to do to follow you on Instagram, to find your book. And, you know, with summer coming, give us some of your 
favorite summer read alouds. And I know your book also has a long list in the back if people buy the book. Um, But give us a little hint. I think that summertime is a very good time to have a languid reading of a book that you might not have time to take, you know, to take on in the wintertime. So actually this is a it's a it's a a central and to me one of my favorite parts of my own book which is kind of self-serving but there you are i loved reading dracula to my then 11 year old daughter flora we both loved it that kind of book i mean it was i think it was 1897 you know the language is pretty ornate and the lots of subordinate clauses and archaic terms uh but this you know summertime a languid summer afternoon to take on a piece of work that that really will take both both you, the reader, and the listeners into a completely different, not just a different world, but a different, almost a different way of using language. I think it's a wonderful time to read classic literature. And, you know, it's funny that the term classic literature can be so off-putting, even to people who might think of themselves as admirers. It, it I think the thing we always have to keep in mind is that something that a book that has given joy to generations of people becomes a classic and it becomes a classic not because it's some stodgy dry thing but because it's absolutely brimming with truth and life i've been a print journalist and a radio journalist and one of the things about radio that holds true for reading aloud as well is that the person who's listening doesn't know what is coming next so if you burble along at high speeds they can't really follow you and they may disengage if you can just let the words you don't have to act them out i mean some people like to do that i kind of like to do that but you know just read each word and let it do the work for you the author has already put those words into a gorgeous order right you just as the reader you just have to sort of you know let yourself be the medium let those words travel through you and out into the air where they come as a joy and a liberation to the person listening. Well, thank you, Megan Cox Gurdon, for explaining the beauties of reading out loud. I'm sure that all our listeners will be inspired to pick up a book and read to their husbands or their friends or their children if they can if they can pin one down. <laughs> so thank you very much, and make sure to pick up a copy of her book, The Enchanted Hour: The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction, and catch all of her great reviews on children's books in the Wall Street Journal online at WS. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my TCA colleague, Ashley McGuire. Joining us now, Jim Wahlberg, to discuss the impact the coronavirus is having on those fighting addiction, many now living in isolation under quarantine. Jim Wahlberg is the fifth oldest of 11 Wahlberg siblings, and he also serves as the executive director of the Mark Wahlberg Youth Foundation. Having battled addiction himself, Jim understands the effects of isolation and uncertainty, and he is watching the situation closely. So welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Jim. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. You know, there's been a tremendous loss of life from the coronavirus itself, but a new study released this month estimates a potential 75,000 deaths due to the coronavirus, but mainly from drug or alcohol abuse and suicide. In the study, they call them deaths of despair. So you've done extensive work in the field of addiction, Jim. How are people dealing with this quarantine and how is it affecting these vulnerable people in our community? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. In recovery, they talk about specifically not isolating human connection, friendship, brotherhood, sisterhood, that kind of thing. So this is sort of the exact opposite of that, right? It's be alone, stay away from people. There's no human contact. I have to imagine that for many people, particularly people in early recovery, but not just people in early recovery, I think this is an extremely difficult time for them. Good news is that we are blessed in prior to this pandemic. I didn't feel so blessed with technology, but I feel like we're blessed now with technology because people can connect. So myself as a person in in long-term recovery, I still like to frequent recovery meetings. And so now I can go to a recovery meeting in Paris. That's a blessing. And I can go anytime I want. You can find other people in recovery to communicate with. That, that's the upside, if there is an upside, but I'll tell you, I'm, I'm petrified. So a person that's addicted, 
a drug dealer is essential personnel. Yes. Right? Really, if you, I mean, it's, it's crazy. And so... And the liquor stores, for instance. Yeah, I mean, I've been beside myself with the fact that the liquor stores are open and the churches are closed. Been driving me crazy. But, you know, I feel like when the doors open, right now, treatment centers... All the treatment centers that I know of personally that of, that I have relationships with, they're all full. They're absolutely full. When the doors open and people are allowed back out now, we're starting to trickle back out. I really feel, I feel like we're going to have an explosion of overdoses and, and hopefully not overdose deaths. The thing is, is that if you're a drug dealer, your best advertisement is overdose. Really? imagine that just think about that for a second let let that sink in your head that's a good advertisement for them if a bunch of people overdose and even if people die that means their product is super strong a lot of people that are fully addicted that's exactly what they're looking for the strongest product they can get for the littlest amount of money and that's been that way since the beginning of drugs, particularly opioids, back in Vietnam days. Um, I'm very afraid of uh, what's going to happen when these doors open. And, you know, I'm, I'm praying for a lot of people because that's really all I can do at this moment, aside from trying to be available, right? So in, in, in the church, we talk about time, treasures, and talent. I still try to live by that. I still want to make myself available to others. One of the things that I've been doing lately is, you know, we all have cell phones. I'm going to guess this probably 2,000 phone numbers in my cell phone. Many of the people, I don't even know who they are. Don't remember how their number got in there. But I've been randomly just calling people and saying, hello, how are you? How are you doing during this time? You just never know where that conversation will go. You just never know. People seem to be more open mm -hmm. to talk about their difficulties in this time when we're all in difficulties. We're not separate because we're having difficulties and others aren't. We're all having difficulties. And so I feel like people are opening up more about the difficulties. Jim, it's interesting the point you make about soldiers returning from war. And there certainly is a, a history of, of substance abuse among our veterans. You know, another group that's really been traumatized, I think, by all of this and is especially traumatized by this increases in alcohol and drug addiction are children, spouses and children. And, you know, we're seeing these articles about upticks in domestic violence upticks in, you know, violence against children. There was, you know, this story that I think horrified all of us about the little six-year-old boy who was found in a shed, you know, tied to a pole by his parents and whether or not, you know, I don't know, you know, I know there was a substance abuse issue there too. But what are you seeing with regards to how this is affecting, you know, rippling beyond just the people who, who are addicted, but into families? You know, Ashley, I'll tell you, the ripples of this thing are too far wide spread out for us to even really wrap our heads around mm -hmm. it. Think about, you know, there's so many things that we don't think about. And some of the things that we have been talking about in this country in terms of people that are in abusive situations, trapped with their abuser, trapped with their abuser while the world seems to be at the least in peril, but it's like at one point it looked like the world was ending, mm -hmm. right? It was just like, it was the craziest thing. And you're trapped at home with your abuser. I mean, I can't even imagine. Uh, and I want to encourage anybody that's listening, if you're in that type of situation, pick up a phone, run out the door. 911 at the very least, the easiest number to remember, but we need to get you into a safe situation and know this, you know, I'm, you're in our prayers for sure. At the, at, but please, whatever you need to do to protect yourself, I encourage you to do that. Don't you so. think, Jim, that all of us, even if we're not in situations of abuse, we have felt that increase in tension, that fear that you mentioned, and the difficulty of living in a house or an apartment at very close quarters with people that we love, but not people that we're used to spending 24 hours a day with. So I've had a lot of sympathy and I've, I've prayed a lot for people because I have felt in my home a lot of increased tension and I can only imagine what that must be like when you're already starting from a place that is already uh, on the edge maybe of danger or already sometimes dangerous. I feel like for for the average family like yourself, right, you, you feel the tension. I mean, that I think is absolutely normal for us to feel that. And you're right. We have our lives. So we have our family life and then we have our lives, whatever that is, our careers, our our jobs, relationships outside of the house with other people that help sort of balance us mm -hmm. so that we can then come home. We can bring together our experiences from the outside world 
and share them with each other. And this sort of, you know, there's topics to discuss. There's things, you know, you're not living right next to people every moment of the day and let's let's face it we're not all like waking up in the morning fixing our hair for those that have hair and <laughs> getting prettied up and doing what we you know like to go out into the world we're just kind of in our jammies right yeah i mean listen i i encourage people to pray together more I mean, I guess it's easy to say to be more understanding, but I think a, a little extra patience, a little extra tolerance, and I know it's being pulled as far as it can be pulled. Good news, I think, is we're starting to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. There's freedom is, mm-hmm. reach, I think, thank God, because, you know, a lot of people at the beginning of this were talking about a spike in divorces, which is terrible, right? Because we're already at a uh, at a critical rate of divorce in this country as it is, right? To think there's going to be a spike from that. If you're just joining us, we're speaking about the impact of coronavirus uh, quarantine on those suffering with addiction with Jim Wahlberg of the Mark Wahlberg Youth Foundation. I was thinking a lot about how difficult it is when we lose our normal routines. And I felt it very strongly myself when I started staying home all the time and my job disappeared. I'm a radiologist, but it's only just now that people are starting to go back to the doctor and because I'm an outpatient doctor. I, I have someone in my family who's a, a chronic alcoholic, very severe. As I was t- in terrible fear for him because as soon as I felt, how disjointed I felt as just having no job to get up in the morning to go to, it adds all this wonderful routine um, that I think as human beings, we need very much. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely routine is important. And I think that creating a routine in this environment is so difficult. I've gone through in the last couple of months, I wanted to make sure I still went to bed at the same time. And then after a while, I started getting up and I was like, what am I getting yes. up for? <laughs> that happened to me too. <laughs> I sleep half the day then I only have half the way to go till I can get back in bed and go to sleep again. (laughs) And so thankfully and gratefully, you know, we have stayed on a schedule in my home. And, you know, last night my wife and I were in bed at 10 o'clock. We have a little sort of process that we go through. We do, we, we do a little reading of the Bible together and, and we talk a little bit and that's it. And when she says, shut the lights off, no matter what I'm doing, time for the lights to go off. Right. So even if I want to stay up and watch TV, I can't, right. I have somebody helping me police myself, mm-hmm. but staying on that, on that schedule is important. And again, utilizing the technology is so important because we can actually broaden our ability to reach people and and to have real connection with people, at least in terms of, you know, being able to see them and speak with them. You know, for me, my goal is to live a life of service. And I find that when I'm in my own way, the best thing for me to do is to look for somebody to help. When I'm able to serve others, then I forget about my own difficulties and I focus on trying to help them. And so that's why I think it's important to go through that phone. There's people in there that not only is there, are there people in your phone that you're not very close to, there's probably people in your phone that you don't really like very much. Sure. Right? <laughs> I'd, start, I'd start there. That's what a I'd good start. idea. I'd start with calling one of those folks and, you know, and just giving of your time. we got plenty of it. we got nothing but time right now. Let's give of some of that time, right? And just call somebody. And it's like calling, you know, it's like calling your mom, right? My mom is 78 years old. She's got a little bit of dementia. She repeats herself a lot, tells the same stories a lot and gets a little confused a lot. And, and, and you just listen. You don't have to say, I call my mom every day. And a lot of times I don't say anything but hello and goodbye. Mm -hmm. And in between, I just let her talk, right? I think doing that for others is a great service and is very helpful for people to just open up and just get it out. Jim, speaking of sticking to schedules, how uh, you mentioned that you joined a, you were able to join through technology a, a support group in Paris. What are groups like AA doing right now to make sure that people don't relapse? It's more of an individual connection thing as opposed to an overriding organization thing. Literally, right now, you could go to go to AA.org and find thousands of meetings, virtual meetings, where you can go to 
all around the world. And in those meetings, if you're having a difficult time and you raise your hand on the meeting or speak up and say, I'm having a difficult time, I can almost guarantee you that somebody will send you a private message saying, hey, listen, I'm available if you want me to call you or you want to call me, here's my phone number. I mean, that is just, that's part of the normal process for us. But now it's it's sort of on a, it's on a bigger scale. And the thing is, is that I would say that just as many people as there are that are struggling and desperate right now in that world in terms of in those meetings, there's just as many people that are desperate to help, desperate to serve because they know the benefit of that. They reap the benefits themselves of being a service to others. There's so much wisdom in that. As soon as we stop thinking of ourselves and thinking of someone else, our burdens become lighter and we become effective and and our souls start to rise. Isn't that true? It allows us to be of maximum service to God and our fellows. And being a max, maximum service to others, it's a lofty goal, but it's the, it's the goal that I strive for, right? I know that a life of service is for me and for anybody really is can be a joyful and fulfilling life and that's what that's what i want i suffered enough in my own addiction and being in and out of jail and in homeless and all those difficulties that i had in my life i suffered enough i want to feel joy i want to feel happiness i i used to think i can find that joy in getting stuff, right? If I can just get a bunch of stuff, then I'll be happy, right? It didn't, that doesn't work for me. The only thing that fills the void inside of me is God. And the way I get closer to God is by being of service to others. Well, God is love, right? <laughs> and love doesn't look inside, love looks outside. Amen. And tell us, as, as Executive Director of the Mark Wahlberg Youth Foundation, what, what do you do? Our organization has, we've been around for now 20 years. We started about 20 years ago our family priest came to us. He had got transferred to a different parish in a really tough neighborhood. And he came to us, he said, you know, our gymnasium is the centerpiece of the community, but the place is falling apart and the, the city's going to shut us down. And it's the only safe place for young people to go in the evening. And so could you help us repair our gymnasium new roof new air conditioning new heating system new floors you name it they needed everything and so my brother and i said absolutely and we did our first fundraising event which was a premiere of the planet of the apes oh. and as soon as we did that and we saw the fruits of our labor we saw what we were able to accomplish we got together again and we're like okay now what and so we started the process of starting the Mark Wahlberg Youth Foundation, which was originally, originally called it something else. And we submitted the name and it got kicked back from the government. And I said, I think this is God. This is a sign from God for me. I think we need to put your name on it, right? And he was concerned about, you know, uh, people thinking it's part of his job so to say right and like in promoting the fact that he's doing good which is like a vanity not, project yeah not who we are not where we come from but i said to him i said listen if your name is on the front of this thing and i call a ceo of a corporation and say and i say it's jim Wahlberg calling on behalf of the mark Wahlberg youth foundation they're probably going to take the call if only out of curiosity. But if I call and say it's Jim Wahlberg calling from the One Kid Foundation, I'm going to get put on hold until I go away because they're inundated with requests. And, and what's your day-to-day -day work now that you do with the foundation? Day-to-day -day is, uh, for, in terms of what we've been able to do during this particular time, we were blessed to be approached by a hospital in Detroit, Michigan. And they had a big problem because they were overflowing with with COVID patients because of the isolation factor, people were in the hospital unable to connect with their own families. No visitors, no, I sure. mean, even literally, if you're going to have a baby, you had to go by yourself. Yeah. Right? Think about people at the end of their life, the last days of their journey. Yeah, on this dying planet, alone. Alone, right? <laughs> so they said, is there something that you can help us so that folks can connect with their families? And so we, in, in partnership with a few other people, were able to secure about 1,100 tablets so that people could Skype and Zoom and do all these different technologies to be able to communicate not only with their families, but also the nurses could commute, could connect with the patient inside the room. Because every time a nurse went in the room, she had to change gloves, mask, gown, everything, right? 
So it helps to cut down on the, the use of all of those important products that they had. I just thought, man, this is such an amazing way to have an impact during these times. But in general, I mean, what we do is we raise money and distribute it to programs that serve inner city kids. And I think a lot of famous people or well-known people, sometimes when they think about how they want to get involved in a philanthropic endeavor, sometimes they think so far away, right? We want to help somebody at some place in the world. And for us, we we didn't have to look that far. We just had to look at the neighborhood we grew up in, right? We were raised at the Boys and Girls Club, at the Y, by our parish, by all these places. We benefited from the, from the kindness of strangers. We got help from others. And so when we thought about what do we want to do to have an impact, a lasting impact, and who do we want to try to impact, we just said, we want to impact families like our own. We know what that struggle is all about. So let's see what we can do to lighten the load. And, we, and you know, the one thing that we do like to make clear is, is we know who the heroes are, right? The heroes are the people that are out there actually doing this work. You, like a school teacher, right? A school teacher decides, I want to teach. I want to educate children. First of all, they need more than a teaching degree now. Right, because now kids come to school with so many different problems and difficulties and situations that they're in, but they're also making a conscious decision that I'm never gonna make any money. So what we like to try to do is we just try to make their job a little bit easier wherever we can. Well, that sounds wonderful, Jim, and it seems that you're really, you're looking close to home and you're doing the practical things that need doing. Where could our listeners read more about your foundation? You can go to the MarkWahlbergYouthFoundation.com. There's grant applications, there's photos and videos and testimonials from programs and organizations that we've been blessed to be involved with. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm sure that our listeners will go there and see how they can be of assistance. Well, thank you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as together we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with each of us on Pentecost Sunday. In the gospel we have for the feast, Jesus tells the apostles in the upper room and all of us, receive the Holy Spirit. So we need to ask, what does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? We can ponder several things from sacred scripture. For example, in Holy Thursday during the Last Supper, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would teach us everything and remind us of all Jesus had told us. The Holy Spirit would testify to Jesus and help us give witness. That the Holy Spirit would convict the world with regard to sin, righteousness, and condemnation. To receive the Holy Spirit, therefore, means that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit's assistance to get to know Jesus and his teaching better, to remember it, to share it, to live it, to thank God incessantly for it. To receive the Holy Spirit means to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in testifying to Jesus. To receive the Holy Spirit means to fight against sin, to seek righteousness or holiness, and to rejoice in the condemnation of the ruler of this world. To receive the Holy Spirit. We can learn a lot about how to do so, remembering what happened on that first Pentecost. Before his ascension, Jesus had enjoined the apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father about which they had heard him speak. For in a few days, he said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The apostles and the other followers of Jesus very wisely huddled around Mary, devoted themselves with one accord to prayer. They prayed with Mary in order to learn from her how to get ready to receive the Holy Spirit. For it was she who was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit at Jesus' virginal conception and who continuously lived as a spouse of the Holy Spirit, receiving and responding to his inspirations in an exemplary way. United with her, they prayed and they waited. Jesus hadn't told them how long they were to wait in prayerful expectation. So their first holy hour stretched into a day of recollection. They eventually went to bed and awakened and prayed a whole second day. They might have thought that just as God the Father had had them wait until the third day for Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit would come after three days that seemed like an eternity. But he didn't come. So they prayed a fourth day and a fifth day. Now this was taking on the form of a retreat, a sixth day. They were doubtless wondering if the Holy Spirit would come on the seventh day, the day of a divine rest. But they were thwarted again, the eighth day. Were they going to have to do this forever, they may have been asking. The ninth day. 
they kept praying and waiting. It was finally on the tenth day of the Feast of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit burst through the windows of the upper room like the noise of a strong driving wind and came down upon each of them as tongues of fire. It's important for us to ask why God had made them wait so long in prayerful vigil. Some might say he wanted them to wait until Pentecost, the day on which the Jews celebrated their harvest festival and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, to show that the Holy Spirit was the law of the new covenant being placed within their hearts. He was going to be the driving force of the harvest of men and women, boys and girls, for Christ's kingdom until the end of time. Some might say it was because... God wanted to give them the chance to learn from Mary about Jesus' early days, his conception, birth, flight to Egypt, finding in the temple, his hidden years working as a construction worker with St. Joseph and Nazareth. Both of those reasons make sense. But I think the most fitting explanation is that God wanted the early church to grow in desire for the baptism of the Holy Spirit Jesus promised to help us long for the Holy Spirit's presence, to discover the reasons why we really, really, really need His guidance and assistance, so that we will be totally receptive and responsive like Mary to the divine ignition the Holy Spirit wants to turn on in us. For us to receive the Holy Spirit well, we must long for Him. We must long for Him like Mary and the Apostles did. And then, like them, we must allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. How does the Holy Spirit want to transform us as we receive him? We can focus on four ways. First is through our prayer. The Holy Spirit, as St. Paul tells us, teaches us how to pray because we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit wants to teach us how to pray as beloved sons and daughters of God who cry out, Abba, Father. To receive the Holy Spirit means that we're ready to cooperate in our prayer and allow him to change how often and how well we pray so that his strong driving wind can blow through us in prayer the way a trumpeteer makes music. Second way the Holy Spirit wants to transform us as we receive him is in how we live our Christian life. The Holy Spirit is sent to guide us. St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians and the Romans that there are two basic ways to live, to live according to the Spirit or live according to the flesh. To live by the Spirit means that we're constantly seeking what God the Holy Spirit seeks. To live by the flesh means that we place our heart, our treasure in the things of this world, in money or material possessions, in carnal pleasures, in fame, power, influence, and superficialities. To receive the Holy Spirit means that we want Him to help us put to death in us whatever lives by the flesh, so that we might live totally by His inspiration, His inbreathing, as Mary and the Apostles did, and of the saints have ever since. The third way the Holy Spirit wants to transform us is with regard to the missionary dimension of the Christian life, to our boldly and confidently sharing our faith with others. He wants to fill us with a fire so that we might set the world ablaze. That's why he came down as tongues of fire upon the early church, to symbolize that he wanted us, strengthened by him, to use our tongues to proclaim the gospel with ardor. We see how the Holy Spirit helps simple men speak powerfully and effectively in front of massive crowds. And he can do the same with us. By baptism and confirmation, we've all received the same Holy Spirit the apostles received on Pentecost. To receive the Holy Spirit means to get ready to burst through the doors of our homes and churches and use every means we have to announce Christ's kingdom. The last way the Holy Spirit wants to transform us is by making us aware of his gifts so that we might use them to transform the church and renew the world. His first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit has given each of us a manifestation of the Spirit for the benefit of the whole. He's given us spiritual gifts so that we might carry out different forms of service and different workings necessary to make Christ's body, the church, strong. The Holy Spirit wants to help us to recognize what our gifts are, and just as importantly, to use them to build up our family, to build up our parish, to build up the church as a whole, and help it fulfill its mission. The mission of the church is not just for ordained or consecrated specialists. To receive the Holy Spirit well is to recognize that we've all been called to be contributors rather than consumers, givers rather than takers, co-responsible participants rather than seated spectators in the mission Christ has given us all. So the consequence of the conversation Jesus wants to have with us on Pentecost is that we will truly receive the Holy Spirit more profoundly than ever and cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he seeks through us to renew the face of the earth. Happy Pentecost. Thank you, Father Landry. 
To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 